Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Theory of Enchantment podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Valdry. And wow, what a week, what a month, what a life. I hope this podcast episode finds you in good health and in good spirits. We have entered a new reality with the total change of our world as a result of COVID-19. We find ourselves stuck at home. We find ourselves doing our work online and no longer able to really connect to one another physically. And this is inevitably a drain on our mental health and sense of wellness and well-being. So... What do we do as a result of that? Well, as you know, Theory of Enchantment is poised and set up to train people in how to achieve a better sense of groundedness, a better sense of mental health, and a better sense of spiritual balance in their lives so that they will be able to tackle such events as global pandemics if they are to pop up every, you know, century or so. So with that being said, I want to encourage you to... Subscribe to the newsletter that Theory of Enchantment is newly putting out. We'll be putting this out every Tuesday. It'll be chock full of awesome resources, uh, great tips from experts in health and wellness, great advice, also referencing pop culture, as you know we love to do. Please subscribe to the newsletter. It's totally free. You can find the link um, in this uh, episode, in the link to this episode. Um, Subscribe. And uh, get these goodies because these are some good gems that can really help us in these uh, next few weeks because let's be honest, it's going to be trying times for us and you really need to maintain that healthy balance in your life so that you can be able to weather whatever storms you have to navigate now as a result of COVID-19. Now that I have that out of the way, without further ado, this episode is super exciting. I interviewed the one and only Daryl Davis, the legendary Daryl Davis, whose claim to fame, in addition to, you know, being an amazing, amazing musician and really performing with some of the, the greats, which you'll get to hear about in this episode, his claim to fame is that he has gotten numerous, hundreds of KKK members to leave the KKK. Over the course of a long tried and true process of simply being in relationship with members of the KKK, he has gotten many, many of them to leave and he has collected their robes in the process. This interview has been a long time coming, so I hope you enjoy. And I want you to think about some of the sort of lessons that he talks about in this interview, because believe it or not, you might find that they're they're super, super totally related to what we're going through now. Because what we are going through now is actually a paradigmatic shift in our world. We are trying to learn and adapt and really figure out how to create meaning in our lives when we are restricted and confined and, you know, going stir crazy and feeling a sense of stuckness, right? And so that is a paradigmatic shift that we have to be able to navigate. And as you'll hear in this episode, um, a lot of what spurned many of these members to leave the KKK was a paradigmatic shift in their own lives. They had to deal first with the cognitive dissonance of realizing that what they thought was true wasn't true, right? Which is something that we're going through right now. The reality that they thought was fixed and permanent and perpetual was in fact not at all. Um, And so they had to really wrestle with that and change uh, ultimately for the better. And I hope that we will, as a country, as a society, as a global community, do a similar thing. So without further ado, 
Enjoy this episode with Daryl Davis. I hope it brings you comfort in these trying times, and I hope it helps you to remember truly, truly what under even the most craziest circumstances is truly possible. Enjoy. Mr. Daryl Davis, welcome to the Theory of Enchantment podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, So can you tell me a little bit first about how you grew up and what was home life like for you? Well, home home was all over the world. Okay. I had a very unique, uh, well, unique to to most Americans Mm -hmm. experience growing up. My parents were U.S. Foreign Service. So I was born in Chicago in 1958. I'll be 62 years old next month. Okay. Happy and early birthday. Thank you. <laughs> My father uh, became one of the first black Secret Service agents in this country. Wow. Yeah, he wanted to be an FBI agent. Okay. And uh, J. Edgar Hoover was a racist sure. and chauvinist. Yeah. No women, no blacks. Yeah. And so my father um, applied at the uh, Secret Service, which also had uh, no black people at the time. Okay. But Harry Anslinger uh, was the head of the Secret Service. And um, he hired five blacks at one time. Okay. And my father was one of those first five. And so he, he rose as high as they would let him rise, you know, for a black person. Mm-hmm. And then he joined the uh, U.S. Foreign Service. And we traveled overseas starting in 1961. So you go to a foreign country, you're there for two years. And you come back home here to the States, you're here for a few months, and then get reassigned to another country. Okay. So growing up every two years, I was in a different country around the world. Now, the interesting thing was this. When I would be in classes in my elementary school or whatever, uh, my classmates were, were from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Nigeria, Italy, Germany, Sweden, France, Japan, Russia. Anybody who had an embassy in that country, all of their children, we all went to the same school. Right. Now, that was, that was my norm. Mm-hmm. It would not have been my norm had I been here in my own country. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the two years, when we would come back to the States, I would either be in an all-black school or a black-and-white school, meaning the still-segregated school or the newly-integrated school. And there was not the amount of diversity in the classroom, either all-black kids or black-and-white kids. Mm -hmm. So uh, the scenario that I had overseas with all these different ethnicities and things had about 12 years before it ever got here. Okay. So when I was living overseas, I was living about 12 years into the future. Right, right. You know, and that was my norm. So when I would come back here and people would be segregated or, you know, uh, not associating with you because of your color, Mm -hmm. I didn't get that. Yeah. I didn't understand it. Did you ever sort of like, did you walk into a situation where you saw people self-segregating? And if so, would you be the person to like, do the opposite thing? Like when you came back to America, for example? You know, you mentioned walking. Um, I literally walked into it. I was I was walking. I was marching mm-hmm. in a Cub Scout parade in which I was the only black scout. And while most of the people uh, in the uh, spectators mm-hmm. were cheering us and waving and being friendly, we reached a point in the march where uh, a few of them began throwing uh, objects at me. This was in Chicago. No, this was in Belmont, Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, we, you know, each time we came back, we went different, lived in different places. Okay. And uh, it was just a few of them, maybe maybe five, four or five people, a couple of adults, a couple of kids, mm-hmm. and I was being hit with soda pop bottles and uh, soda pop cans, 
and rocks and debris from the street, mm -hmm. and I didn't understand it. Uh, I thought the people who were throwing the things did not like the scouts. Right. <laughs> That's how naive I was, right? right? right yeah. It wasn't until my, my troop leader, my den mother, my cub master all came running back. You know, they're all white, right? Yeah. And they huddled over me with their bodies and yeah. shielded me to protect me. And um, I didn't get it. That's know? a striking visual to imagine. Yeah. yeah. And when I got home, my mother and father, who were not at the parade, mm -hmm. uh, they were asking me, how did I fall down and get all scraped up? And I told them I didn't fall down. I told them, you know, what had happened. And they sat me down and they explained to me what racism was. Mm -hmm. And at the, I was 10 years old, it's 1968. And believe it or not, I had never heard the word racism is at the this, age of 10. Is this because you were, do you think it's because you co were constantly living abroad? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, well, either, either because I was constantly living abroad uh, where I was around all kinds of races. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's only one race where we say that. Right, yeah. Um, and there was never any problem. Or uh, when I was back here, I was in an all-black school. So there was no confrontation, right? Um, but even in the history classes abroad, there was no talk, there was no like discussion about racism? No, not in second grade. Sure. You know, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, things like that now. Uh, okay. So um, anyway, when they told me this, I literally did not believe them. I, um, because I had no experience with it before. So, and you know, I, I'm trying to be logical. Right. <laughs> the, the white people over there on the sidewalk who are throwing these things, they did not look any different to me mm -hmm. than my white friends. Right. Whether my white friends overseas from France or from Australia or Sweden or my fellow Americans from the embassy, mm -hmm. or for that matter, um, my friends right there in Belmont, Massachusetts. So it couldn't be because of the color of my skin. Right. I didn't have any problem with white people. They didn't have a problem with me. Right. So those people, they had, they had an issue, but it couldn't be my skin color. Yeah. And um, my, my parents kept saying, Daryl, there's just some people who are just like that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And um, about them, so I didn't believe them. Okay. I thought, you know, they, they, there's some kind of joke going on here that, that they're not letting me in on. Sure. Well, a month and a half later or so, that same year, April 4th, mm -hmm. 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Right. And I remember it very clearly. Every major city, we were 20 minutes from Boston in mm -hmm. Belmont. Every major city, Boston, right here where you're sitting, Washington, D.C., my hometown, uh, Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York, Nashville, Los Angeles, all burned to the ground mm -hmm. that night with violence and destruction. Yeah setting buildings on fire, all in the name of this new word that I'd learned called racism. Mm -hmm. So now I realized my parents had not lied to me. They told me the truth. This thing, this phenomenon called racism exists, mm -hmm. but I don't understand why. Why does it exist? Why does somebody hate you just for the color of your skin? It doesn't make any sense. I understand now that people do, mm -hmm. but I don't understand why. So I formed this question in my mind, which was at that age, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? Mm -hmm. And now for the next almost 52 years, I've been looking for the answer to that, for that question. 
So let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about your what was your college life like? What what did you major in? And and talk a little bit about your music background. Sure. Okay. Most of my uh, schools that I that I attended throughout my life had been um, you know either all black, it's like like you know second grade things like that. Yeah. Um, back in the in the early '60s when I was here, mm-hmm. or interracial mm-hmm. or all white. Um, when I graduated college, I wanted to, to have a, uh, an experience with an all black uh, institution. Okay. And um, I uh, chose Howard University. And that's where I went. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was definitely different. Uh, there were some good things about it. There were some bad things about it. I, I majored in music. I got my degree in jazz. Mm. Uh, commercially out here, I play rock and roll and blues and country and R and B, but uh, it was you know it w- it was good for me to uh, to to have that experience. Um, as a as a black student, I got a lot more individual attention okay. than I probably would have gotten in a white institution, you know, from professors and things like that. Sure, um, but there was not. The um, the equipment, the mm-hmm. facilities were way under par. Okay. And I hate to say that. Yeah. You know, because I tell you what, I travel all over this country. I give anywhere from 60 to 80 lectures a year, mm-hmm. mostly at colleges and universities all over this country mm-hmm. and high schools. And I've seen high schools better equipped than what we had at Howard University. And Howard University used to be the flagship Right. Of the HBCUs, you know. So it had it had gone down. It has gone way down. Yeah. It had gone down when I got there. Right. And Howard University, unfortunately, was uh, resting on its laurels. Okay. Okay. A lot of a lot of great people came out of Howard University. Thurgood Marshall. Right. In terms of music, Roberta Flack. Mm, um, yeah. And they told her she'd never make it. <laughs> when oh, she really? Was there. I had some of her same teachers. Okay. You know, but uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of great people came out of Howard. Um, and there were a lot of great people there when I, when I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my classmates went on to become the uh, band director for Whitney Houston, for Michael Jackson, oh, wow. for a lot of different people, uh, my classmates. But um, the administration was, was corrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some teachers there who should not have been teachers. They, you know, I, I doubt they were licensed. Sure. You know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, the security cameras that were in the uh, building when I arrived never worked. The whole four years I was there, they never worked. And guess what? Um, ten years later, I went there to to uh, to get some uh, Howard University choir members. Howard University had a stellar choir. Okay. To get some choir members to, to sing on my CD. Mm-hmm. Those same cameras were still in the building, <laughs> still broken. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, I hope I hope they're fixed by now. Uh, they're not. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the president of Howard University uh, got in trouble. Bo- two presidents got in trouble uh, for embezzlement. Oh wow! You know, so you know a lot, a lot of, a lot of problems there. Yeah. And uh, you know, and there's no reason for it to be. You know, right. that that the school has good reason to be proud, but they have a lot of things they need to fix. Sure, but you would say overall you got a great music education there. I got a good music education there. Okay. Uh, it could have been better. Okay. So who are some of your musical influences? Oh my goodness. My biggest musical influences. Chuck Berry. Mm-hmm. 
Elvis Presley, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Pine Top Perkins, Johnny Johnson, Sonny Land Slim. These are pioneers mm -hmm. in, uh, in blues and boogie woogie and uh, rock and roll. But I also listen to a lot of country. Mm -hmm. I listen to Liberace, for example. Um, you know, I started out kind of late in life. I, as, as a kid, as a kid, I, uh, I was fascinated. My hero was James Bond. Okay. And, um, was that, did that have anything to do with your father's influence as a secret service? I, I don't know. You know, it, it may have. Subconsciously? Yeah, it may have. But he was my hero. And I still like James Bond. And to this day, I still have my, my little James Bond briefcase where you push the handle and it fires plastic bullets, you know? Um, That's cool. It's probably worth a lot of money, too. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, I wanted to be James Bond. That was number one. But I, but I also was fascinated with computers okay. at the same time. But at the time, in the 1960s and stuff, computers took up more space, you know, than my living room and dining room. Yeah. And I always knew that they would get smaller. I never dreamed they'd get as small as, as my cell phone. Mm -hmm. But I knew there was money in computers. And so I was torn between being a computer programmer and a, uh, and a espionage agent, a spy. And th this started when I was a young kid, okay. this fascination. And throughout my life, each one pulled at me with equal force. So I couldn't move either way. I was stuck in the middle. Because mm -hmm. I couldn't figure out, how can I have both careers? Right. Back then, there was no way to have both careers. Today, you can. Today it's called cyber espionage. Okay, sure, right? yeah. That term did not exist, you know, yeah, 30, yeah. 40 years ago. Yeah. So um, I thought about, you know, when I got into high school, I never played an instrument. Uh, I was not musically uh, inclined. But um, I thought about people that I admired a lot. I always liked music. Mm -hmm. I thought about people that I admired, just anybody. And, and two names came to mind almost instantly, Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry. And what was it that I admired about those two gentlemen? was the fact that they had made millions upon millions of people all over the world happy mm -hmm. with their music. People that they would never meet, but they would touch them with their music. Mm -hmm. You know, you've heard songs by Elvis mm -hmm. and Chuck Berry. You ever met them? Nope. Exactly. Okay? You've danced to their music. You might have sung the chorus to their songs or whatever. Uh, so, you know, people might see Elvis on TV or Chuck in concert or whatever, but do you meet him? Do you shake his hand? No. Uh, but you like his music and you buy his records and you're happy. Right. I say, you know, that's really cool to, to give somebody a good feeling and you don't even know them. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn how to play music. So, yeah. As someone who didn't uh, do it growing up, did it come to you easily? Because the way you play is like almost no. like uh, as if you were aficionado. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. I uh, know. You know, what you're seeing is the finished product. Okay. <laughs> you don't see the years and hours and frustrations of sitting in my practice room going over, you know, the stuff that I do. Yeah. You know, and, and it's just like, you know, if, if you go to a Broadway play, um, you're seeing, you know, perfection, mm -hmm. but you don't see the hours and months you know, that, that they took rehearsing and practicing yeah. it. So uh, for me, no, I was not a prodigy. Okay. I went to school with, with prodigies. Mm -hmm. I, there were some prodigies in my classes. Yeah. You know, you just, they just sit down with any instrument and boom, you know, they're a connoisseur of the yeah. thing. Um, no, I, I struggled at it. I, I worked hard okay. and I practiced a lot. But I, I was very fortunate at Howard University 
Uh, here's one thing that was really, really good was this. Well, first, let me back up a little bit. My parents had a fit when I told them I was going to major in music. Okay. Oh, my God. We went round and round and round. They did not want me to major in music. Now, for good reason. Yeah. Um, their, re- their rationale was, A, uh, I, I had no musical background. The people that I would be going to school with have been playing since age three or age five, taking mm-hmm. lessons. You know, there's no way you can compete with experience. There is no substitute for experience. Right. Now, I can take a book, any book, on anything, on physics, on music, on whatever. You give me a book, I can read it, and I can sponge that information, and I can recite that book to you mm-hmm. as though I wrote the book. Right. I can absorb. Okay. But applying is a different story. You get better with that with, with experience. Mm-hmm. It's like the day you get your driver's license does not make you a good driver. Right. The day you pass the bar does not make you a top lawyer. Right. You know, you, you need experience. So I had no experience, and I would be going to school with kids who had all kinds of experience. So my parents were concerned about that, number one. Number two, you know, there's no stability mm-hmm. in the arts. You know, Daryl, you need a job where you can make some money, uh, you know, ha- have a retirement plan, on and on, have a health insurance, et cetera. Why don't you major in something that you can do and minor in music? You can go play music on the weekends or something. No, I'm gonna major in music. You know, we, we went round and round. So anyway, uh, I did, but I was very fortunate with the uh, with my peers at Howard University because you know they would see me screwing up, <laughs> and they would say, "Daryl, you know, stop by my practice room, you know, after class or whatever. Let me show you how I would approach that okay. on the piano." Yeah, and I tell you what, I am so grateful for that because with their help, I was able to learn shortcuts mm-hmm. and advance myself a lot quicker. Okay. Um, so there, there was more a spirit of cooperation than competition. That's good. You know, yeah, that was very good. And like I said, I had no issues whatsoever with the students at Howard University. The administration, we all had issues with the administration because uh, they <laughs> yeah. were corrupt. You know, yeah. they, they, were, they were raping the students of tuition. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us the story of the time you were approached by a, a, a Klan member who was was impressed by your by your piano playing well okay i graduated in 1980 from howard and of course you know i have my degree in music i'm gonna get a job playing music yeah you know i don't, I don't want to go work at a bank or work at mcdonald's when i'm a musician right yeah so uh a movie had come out i mean i started playing blues and rock and roll and whatever r&b whatever was was, was popular in 1980 uh and then shortly thereafter a movie came out called urban cowboy with uh, John Travolta, and it was about a country music and this mechanical bull and all these line dances. The movie was popular that it caused all the bars and clubs that were playing R&B and Top 40 to switch over to country. Wow. Yeah, and all these bars started installing these mechanical bulls, and you ride them, oh. do these country line dances, right? Yeah. And, and it's funny because people who were like white-collar executives would go out and buy flannel shirts and Stetson hats and cowboy boots, you know, and then wow. after work they'd go to the country dances. So anyway, I joined a country band because uh, blues bands and, and, uh, and R&B bands were working maybe once a week, three times a month. Country bands were working all week long. Uh, okay. So now country and blues are kissing cousins. It's the same music. Okay. It's the same three chords. What are right? the three chords? Uh, the tonic, dominant, and subdominant. Okay. One, four, and five. Okay. All right. Um, 
So if you're in the key of C, it'd be C, F, and G. Okay. All right? Uh, millions of hits. Yeah. Millions of songs have just those three chords. And I can demonstrate that for you in a little bit here on the piano. So what's the difference? What in terms of, because the sounds manifested differently, obviously. Well, uh, back in, in classic country, the, the person's voice had a twang to it. Yeah. Sound very nasally and twangy. And, and the bass would be playing two notes. Boomed, 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 right. boom. Okay. One, five, one, five. And in rock and roll, the bass might be walking. Boom, 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 oh, boom, okay. boom, boom. Kind of yeah. thing. But, but over the same chords. Right. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so um, I joined this country band. It was easy to play. I played country music. I liked it. I was the only black guy in the band, and usually the only black person where we would play. So one night we were in a town called Frederick, Maryland, and there was a bar there where there was a truck stop there. The truck stop had an um, all-night restaurant, a bay where they do mechanic work on the trucks, gas station, and, and a lounge, and, and a motel above the lounge. Well, the lounge was called the Silver Dollar Lounge. Okay. And uh, it was an all-white lounge. And when I say all-white, it does not mean that black people could not go in. Okay. But black people chose not to go in. Gotcha. And it was a good choice because they were not welcome. Right. So they just stayed out of there. Well. Did you know this when you yeah, were? Yeah, I knew okay. this. And, um, but, you know, I, I wanted to play. Yeah. That's what I do. So here I am in the Silver Dollar Lounge with this band. The band had played there many times before. They were an established country band. I had just joined. You know, they liked me. They hired me to play piano for them. So my first night there, uh, we played, and uh, we finished the first set, came off the stage on break, and I'm walking to, the, to go sit down at the band table, and somebody came up behind me, and put the, I felt an arm come across my shoulder mm. you know, in a friendly manner. Yeah, yeah, and, But I didn't know anybody there, right? So I'm turning around to see who's touching me. And this guy, he's maybe 15, 18 years older than me. Okay. And um, he says, man, I sure like your all's music. I said, thank you. And I shook his hand. And um, he says, he points at, he pointed at the stage. And he says, I've seen this here band before, but I ain't never seen you before. Where'd you come from? So I get, apparently he's a regular. Okay, right? yeah. And um, I said, well, this is my first time here. I just joined the band. But yeah, they played here before. Mm-hmm. He says, man, I sure like your piano playing. This is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Mm-hmm. And I was not offended by that, yeah. but I was kind of surprised that this guy being older than me did not know the history and origin of Jerry Lee's style. And so I wasn't trying to be a, you know, a smart aleck, but I said to him, I said, well, where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play? Yeah. He says, what are you talking about? I said, well, he learned from the same place I did from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where rock and roll came from. Oh, no, 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 Jerry Lee invented that. I never heard no black man play like that except for you. Something, okay, well, I never heard Little Richard or Fats Domino, same style. Yeah, and, and he, did, uh, he wasn't aware of those guys. Huh? He wasn't aware of those Apparently guys. Apparently not. Yeah. You know, or he didn't listen to them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so um, he thought I was putting him on. Mm-hmm. I said, look, man, I said, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis is a very good friend of mine. You know, now he he didn't believe that either. Yeah, but he he wanted to buy me a drink. Okay, and I don't drink alcohol. But I went back to his table and I had a cranberry juice. He paid the waitress. He took his glass. He clinks my glass mm-hmm. and cheers me. And he says, "You know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man." 
And now I'm curious. Yeah. Like, you know, what's going on here? Yeah. Um, and it's not that I'm stupid, but I will admit to being naive. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I did not grow up that way. Right. Right. I grew up with, with everybody. Right. So for me to imagine having never sat down with a Chinese person or a Mexican yeah. or, you know, whatever was, was, you know, um, like foreign, foreign to me. Yeah. Right. And because in, in, in my life at that time, I sat down with thousands of white people yeah. and had a beverage, a meal, a conversation. How is it this guy who's older than me never did that? Yeah. You know, where's he been? And so innocently, I asked him, I said, I said why? Because I was curious. Mm-hmm. He didn't answer me. He stared at, at the table like, you know, he didn't want to answer me. Mm-hmm. And I asked him again. He had a friend sitting next to him who elbowed him at the side. I said, tell him, tell him, tell him. I said, tell me, because now I'm not, you know, it's a mystery. What's yeah. going on here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, then I started laughing at him. <laughs> I just busted out laughing because I didn't believe him. Yeah. You know, I have every book on the Klan. Yeah. And I read them all. And in none of my books <laughs> does talk about how a Klansman come up and embrace a black guy and want to hang out and buy him a drink. It doesn't yeah. work that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so this guy's making a joke. I'm going to go along with it. So I'm laughing. He goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, and hands me his clan membership card. I look at this. Oh, I recognize the Ku Klux Klan insignia, which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center of the cross. Mm. This thing was for real. So I stopped laughing. It wasn't funny anymore, right? Yeah. Gave it back to him. And we talked about the clan. We talked about some other things. But the guy gave me his phone number. He wanted me to call him anytime I was to come back to this bar because he wanted to, to bring his friends, mm-hmm. meaning Klansmen and Klanswomen, to see this black guy play piano like Jerry Lee. Now, I don't know that he called me a black guy to his friends. Right, 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 yeah. you get the idea. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'll call you. So the band was there like every six weeks, you know, different bands every week on a rotation, six-week rotation. So um, I called the guy like on a Wednesday or a Thursday and said, hey, man, you know, we're going to be down at the Silver Dollar. Come on out. He'd come both Friday and Saturday. He'd bring Klansmen and Klanswomen. You know, they didn't come in robes and hoods. They came in you know, right, yeah. regular clothes. And they would, you know, come up near the stage and watch me play. And then they'd get out on the dance floor and dance. And on the break, I would go to his table to say hello. Some of them would hang there because they were curious about me. Mm-hmm. Others would see me come and they'd get up and scurry to some other part of the room. Like, you know, we want to watch you, but we don't want to talk to you or deal with you. Right. So, yeah, that's cool. So I would I would hang with the ones that you know that would talk to me and they were curious. Yeah. You know, um, and this went on for um, I don't know maybe a few more months. Okay. And then I quit the band. Okay. And I went back to playing uh, rock and roll and blues and whatever else was going on. Mm-hmm. And then a little while later, it dawned on me. You know, well once I quit the band, I lost track of the guy. Sure. It wasn't like you know I had any reason on my day off to go to Frederick and hang out with the Klan. It wasn't yeah. like that. I just hung out with them when I was yeah. working there. Yeah. So um, I quit the band, and then some months later or whatever, it dawned on me, Daryl, the answer to your question that you've been looking for since age 10, mm. how can you hate me when you don't even know me, it fell into your lap. Yeah. Because I bought books, all those books on the Klan that I bought, they didn't answer my question. Right. All right I asked people, well, Daryl, you know, some people, they're just like that. That's mm-hmm. the way it is. There, there was no concrete answer. Right. Right? And so it dawned on me, the answer fell into your lap. Who better to ask that question of 
than someone who would go so far as to join an organization that practices hating people, people who don't look like them, people who don't believe as they believe. Mm-hmm. Why don't I ask the Klan? Yeah. You know? So I've already, you know, met this Klansman, and uh, he was friendly and nice, you know. Um, I'm going to get him to hook me up with the uh, Grand Dragon. Okay. Now, let me explain to you how the hierarchy of the Klan works. Okay. Okay. We call our national leader the president. They call theirs the imperial wizard. Mm-hmm. Right. Anybody who, wizard means top person. Okay. Imperial means national. Okay. Okay. So anybody it's who... It's rather ironic. Huh? <laughs> it's rather ironic. Yeah. So anybody <laughs> who, um, who, is, who is prefixed with the word imperial means that person's on the national level. Okay. Imperial wizard being the top president, an imperial caliph would be like a vice president. Okay. Imperial this, imperial that, blah, blah, blah. They have secretary, treasurer, on and on. Then uh, the, the, the next person high up would be the, uh, the state leader, a governor. Um, they call their governor the Grand Dragon. Dragon being governor, grand means state. Okay. All right, state leader. So a grand caliph would be like a lieutenant governor. Okay. All right. Um, and, and then again, you, at, at that level, you have the grand secretary, treasurer, on and on. Within the state, you have counties. And um, we would call the county person the county manager or county executive. They call that person the great titan. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, great is a, is a county level. Within the county, you have districts. We call those people a council member or alderman, mayor. Mm-hmm. They call that person the exalted cyclops. Where do they, where do they get this? They get, okay. <laughs> All right, let's, okay, let's, let's, go, let's go back a little bit then. Okay. All right. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan was formed in 1865, uh, Christmas Eve, 1865 in Pulaski, Tennessee, by some Confederate uh, soldiers. And... They were of Irish and Scottish descent. Mm. They were of the Masons, mm. the Scottish Rite. And if you know anything about the Masons, it's a secret uh, fraternity organization. Okay. And they have all these strange names, Grand this and Poobah that and yeah. whatever else. So th- now not to say that the Masons are all clan members. Sure. They're not. Sure. But the clan, they appropriate things from elsewhere okay. and, and use it for their own purposes. Okay. So they appropriated this idea. Of, of secrecy mm-hmm. from the Masons. Gotcha. And uh, so that's where they got all their weird names. Gotcha. Okay. okay. Um, after the Cyclops, which is the district level, you just have regular uh, clan people. Okay. No offices. So uh, anyway, <clears throat> I figured um, I'm going to go around. I'm, I'm going to start here in Maryland where I live. I'm going to interview the Grand Dragon from Maryland. Then I'm going to go around the country, interview people up north, down south, midwest, west. And find out what they're thinking. How can they hate me when they don't even know me? All I want to know is learn where that comes from. So you set out to go on a, like a, a, a an entire adventure. Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> um, you know, no, no books have been written by black authors on the Klan. Okay. Mine was the first. Okay. Um, and you had enough resources to just be able to do this without needing to play music? No. Here... <laughs> Good point. Here's what I did. Yeah. The money that I made from playing music funded me. I, w- I would buy airplane tickets, uh, put gas in my car, okay. stay in hotels, whatever. Through that, through that funding, mm-hmm. I, I was selfing it through my music. Okay. Enabled me to do this. And then when the book came out, 
and I began making royalties from my book. Mm-hmm. I got an advance in the publisher, et cetera. That would fund my music. Okay. So it was like, you know, one fed the other. Sure. So so what was that first meeting with the, what's the title? Grand? Grand Dragon. Grand Dragon. What yeah. was that meeting like? Okay. So let me back up a little bit. Okay. Um, the guy uh, who I met in the bar, okay, who bought me the drink and all that, um, I approached him about this. He did not want to introduce me to the Grand Dragon. Okay. He yeah. was afraid. I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, he, he said, no, 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 you know, can't do that. Um, he was afraid that we both would get in trouble. Okay. And I begged and pleaded with him to, to, to give me this guy's phone number and address. He finally gave it to me on the condition that I not tell this man. The, 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 uh, the Grand Dragon's name was Roger Kelly. Okay. That I not tell Mr. Kelly uh, where I got his personal information. Sure, okay. Okay, I agreed. He said, all right. So he gave it to me. He said, Daryl, do not fool with Roger Kelly. Roger Kelly will kill you. Okay. All right? And I said, well, that's the whole reason why I need to see <laughs> Mr. Kelly. Yeah. I want to find out why would he do that. Yeah. You know? So, um, <laughs> yeah. And he begged and pleaded with me not, you know, not to do it. But I said I would. Anyway, um, I gave the, uh, the number to my secretary. My secretary's white. Mm-hmm. I could have called Mr. Kelly myself. Right. But I figured if I called him, he might pick up in my voice that I'm black. Sure. And say, I'm not talking to you. Click. Mm-hmm. And then my whole project would have ended before it ever got started. Right. But I knew if he talked to Mary on the phone, he would know that she's white mm-hmm. by her voice. And I knew enough about the clan mentality from all the books that I read. He would not automatically think that this white woman on the other end of this phone is working for a black man. Right. Right? Especially a black man who's writing a book on the Klan. Right. Because they didn't exist. Yeah. So that would increase the odds that he would agree to do an interview. Mm -hmm. Right? So I told Mary, you call him up, and I said, do not tell Mr. Kelly that I'm black. If he asks, don't lie to him. Tell him. Mm -hmm. But don't give him reason to ask. Mm -hmm. She said, okay. So... Um, that was one reason why I, I had her do it because she was white and I thought it would increase the odds. And secondly, if, if he knew that I was black, um, and he still agreed to do the interview, he might have different answers for me right. than he would have for a white interviewer. Right. So I wanted to be spontaneous and candid. So she understood, uh, she called him and uh, he did not ask what color I was and he agreed to do the interview. Mm-hmm. So we set it up. For the motel right above the Silver Dollar Lounge. Okay. He lives up there in that county. Okay. So um, <clears throat> Mary and I, we got there several hours early. Because, you know, usually you know, the, the clan will send out scouts mm. to check things out before they bring their wizard or their dragon. You okay. Know, sort of like, you know, it's like if Obama or, or Trump or whoever is going to appear somewhere, right. Secret Service goes and checks it out first, right? Right. So um, I didn't want you know, anybody to come and see me. Mm-hmm. So we got there several hours early. Okay. And um, got the room. And I gave Mary some money, to sent her down the hall to get soda pop out of the machine, put it in the bucket, fill it with ice, get it all cold, so I could be hospitable. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what this man was going to do when he saw me. Was he going to freak out and attack me? Would he just look at me and say, I'm not talking to you, yeah. and turn around and walk away? Or would he come in the room and do the interview like he told Mary he would do. Mm-hmm. But in any event, whatever he was going to do, I was going to be hospitable and say, 
would you like a cold beverage? Mm-hmm. It's like I, I offered you one when you got here. Right. So she got the soda, put it in the ice bucket, and uh, we waited. Now, just by happenstance, the way the room was designed, if you were standing out in the hallway, in the doorway, looking into the room, mm-hmm. you can't see who's in the room. Okay. Because the bathroom is right there, so you walk in the door. Okay. You have to walk through the door and turn to your right, and the room is back there. Okay. You know, before you know, you cannot see around the corner. Sure. Until you walk in. So I took the little lamp table, took the lamp off, and put the corner, put the table in the far corner of the room, and I put a chair on this side for Mr. Kelly, a chair on that side for me, and I had a little bag, uh, in which I had a cassette recorder. Okay. Which I took out, put it in the middle of the table. I'm hoping that Mr. Kelly will come in the room, number one. Right. And number two, that, that if he does, that he'll allow me to record the interview. Okay. And I had some blank cassettes in my bag, and I had a copy of the Bible. Okay. Because the Ku Klux Klan claims to be a Christian organization. Mm-hmm. And they say that the Bible preaches racial separation. Okay. Now, in my reading of the Bible, I've never seen that. Right. So I wanted to be able to pull up my Bible and say, hey, Mr. Kelly, please, show me chapter and verse where it says... Blacks and whites must be separate. Right. I'm all ready. So uh, right on time, knock, knock, knock. Um, I'm seated at the table where you can't see me. Mm-hmm. Mary comes up and goes around the corner and uh, opens the door. In walks what is known as the Grand Nighthawk. Nighthawk means bodyguard, security. Okay. Grand Nighthawk is the bodyguard to the Grand Dragon. Okay. Imperial Nighthawk be the bodyguard for the Imperial National. Okay. okay. So this guy, this Nighthawk, He's wearing military camouflage. Okay. And on one side of his chest is that clan emblem, the red circle, white cross, blood drop. On the other side are the initials KKK. Mm-hmm. And embroidered on his little cap, Barrett, it says Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Okay. And on his hip, he has a holstered semi-automatic handgun. He comes in. Mr. Kelly is walking directly behind him in a dark blue suit and tie. Okay. And the Nighthawk turned the corner... And saw me and just froze. And Mr. Kelly did not realize that his Nighthawk had, st- had stopped short. <laughs> yeah. And he slammed into his back and knocked him forward. Yeah. So now they both are stumbling around trying to regain their balance. Right. And, I, and I'm sitting at the table just like, you know, watching this comedy. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and yeah. they're like looking all around the room like, uh-uh, something's not right. Yeah. And I could read their faces. Their faces were saying... Did the desk clerk give us a wrong room number? Or did, mm-hmm. we, did we misunderstand something? Yeah. Or is this an ambush? Right, yeah. You know, they set up. Yeah. They're always paranoid, right? So I saw this apprehension. Yeah. And I stood up and I showed, I, I displayed my palms. Mm-hmm. So they could see I had nothing in my hands. Mm-hmm. And then I walked forward with my hand outstretched. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly. I'm Daryl Davis. Mm-hmm. And he shook my hand. I was surprised. But he shook my hand and the Nighthawk shook my hand. Okay. So, so far, so good. I said, Come on in, come on in, have a seat. Mr. Kelly sat down, mm-hmm. and the Nighthawk stood at attention right to his right, you know, really erect and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, before I could sit down opposite him, Mr. Kelly says, Mr. Davis, do you have any form of identification? Okay. I said, sure. I went to my wallet. I handed him my driver's license. He said, oh, you live on such and such street in Silver Spring. Mm-hmm. And uh, that ha- had me a little concerned. Right, because now he knows where you live. Yeah, now he knows where I live. Yeah. You know, why doesn't he just look at the picture, look at my name, match it up, yeah. and give me back my license? Yeah. He's calling off my street. Right, yeah. So, 
I, you know, I, you know is he, is he going to come and burn a cross in my house? Right. You know, what's <laughs> in your yard, up? yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, I was a little concerned, but I did not want to let him know that I was concerned. So I said, yes, Mr. Kelly. I said, that is where I live. And then I named his house number and his street. How did you know it? Because that guy gave it to me. Oh, on, oh on the yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah. telling where I got it. Yeah, yeah, Right? And I said, and you live at such and such number at such and such street. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I was letting him know, you know where I live, I know where you live. Mm-hmm. If you come visit me, I'm going to come visit you. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to confine all this visiting to this motel room. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's yeah. what I was implying by reciting his address. Yeah. He smiled, he nodded his head like he understood. I did not realize that day, it was many months down the road, that I had been presumptuous. I had no reason uh, to feel threatened by okay. Mr. Kelly knowing my address. It was just pure coincidence. One of his members lived right down the road here. Oh, uh, okay. okay. So, so yes, he was saying that because one of his members actually lived in that neighbor, in your neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he, he would have to take my street to get to that guy's house. Okay. Yeah. So he recognized the street name, that's all. Yeah. But I had no way of knowing that right. at the time, right? Right. And so, um, you know, many months later, you know, when I found that out, that, that member now is in prison. Oh, wow. In, okay. in the state of Maine. Okay. He's in a federal prison for committing a hate crime. Wow. He's there for a long time. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, we got on with this uh, conversation. Um, I asked him, you know, why he joined the Klan and, you know, what, what was he hoping to accomplish? And, and how, how can you hate me? You know, you don't even know me, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, well, you know, black people, you know, are, are, we're prone to crime. Most black people are criminals. Well, how do you figure that? Well, look at the prison system, uh, Mr. Davis. There are more blacks in prison than there are whites. Okay, that's true. There are more blacks in prison. But that's not the reason we're in prison. Right. Okay, yes, yeah, some of us are criminals. But it's also due to an inequitable judicial system. Right. But see... He doesn't see that. He only sees the result, and that's enough for him. Okay. So one's perspective is one's reality. Right. You know, he doesn't want to see the reason behind it. Mm-hmm. He's satisfied. That's the reason. Um, so there, there are more black. You know, we're prone to crime. There are more blacks in prison. Uh, also, black people are very lazy. Mm. Uh, we try to scam the government welfare system because we don't want to work. And also, black people have have smaller brains than white people. Uh, that's why our IQ is is not as high as white people's IQ. Uh, that's why we we do so poorly on the SATs and things like that. Now, yes, we do score um, lower than white people do on the SATs. It's not because we have a smaller brain. But I listen to him say all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And what he is saying is offensive. Mm-hmm. But... Here is a crucial point. What he is saying is offensive. Most people would be offended by what he is saying. Right. Me, I'm not offended by what he's saying. The reason being, not because it's true, but because it's a lie. But precisely Why? because it's a lie. Precisely because it's a lie. Right. Why should I be offended by somebody who doesn't even know me? He only met me five, ten minutes ago. Right. And all he sees is the color of my skin, and he, and he has determined by the color of my skin that I'm a criminal, I'm lazy, and my brain is small. All right, so why should I be offended by that? Yeah. All right, he doesn't know me. So I just let, let him roll on. Right. And when he finishes, I let him know I don't have a criminal record. I have never been on welfare. I've never measured my brain, but I'm sure it's the same size as anybody else's. And then I tell him, furthermore, you know what? 
um, if brain size has anything to do with it, with uh, IQ capacity, then you are not supreme. <laughs> because in this sure. country, the people who score the highest on the SATs are the Chinese people. Sure. Chinese kids. Yeah. So they must have bigger and better brains than you do. Right. You know? <laughs> well, then he changed the subject. Okay, yeah. All right? So we, we, we get on with something else. But every time my uh, cassette recorder would run out of the tape, because, you know, like 15, 20-minute tapes in there, okay. whatever, I would reach down into my bag to get a fresh tape. Okay. Or if he, if he said, Mr. Davis, the Bible says. Yeah. I'd reach down to pull out my Bible. Okay. To, to make him show me where it says it. Would he, how would, how would that part of the conversation go? Would he just well, change the subject again? He would change the subject or, or, or he would say, well, you know, I don't think that's true. Okay. You know, and then he tried to show me something in the Bible that negates it. And I'll give you an example of that. Okay. But um, whenever I reach into my bag to, to change tapes or pull up the Bible, when I reach down, the Nighthawk will reach up to his gun. Every time. Yeah, every time. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I got that. You mm -hmm. know, that's his job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has no idea what's in my bag. Yeah. So he's prepared, you know, to protect his boss. Mm -hmm. So I got that. Well, after about an hour of this, he relaxed. Okay. He, he realized there was no, nothing in the bag. Yeah. I went in and out of the bag. No problem. Yeah. All right. He didn't move. Um, a little over an hour. Um, we, were, we were just having a casual conversation about something. And there was a, a noise in the room. A very fast noise. I got, that was it. Okay. That. And it came out of nowhere. And we all jumped. It was, it was just a surprise. And I came up out of my chair. And because the noise was so short, mm -hmm. my ear could not figure out what it was. Mm -hmm. It had been a little bit longer. I said, oh, I know what that is. Mm -hmm. But it was like, boom, it's gone. And because I could not figure it out, I perceived it to be a threat, mm -hmm. an ominous noise. Because, you know, you, you fear what you don't understand. Right. And so um, I felt threatened. Plus, the circumstances. I'm a black guy. This guy's a clan leader. I'm already told this guy's going to kill me. Right. I fool with him. So all this is going through my head, and I'm thinking, what did I just say? What did I just do to cause Mr. Kelly to go off and make some kind of weird noise? I came up out of my chair, and I hit the table. I had gone into what you call survival mode. When you fear for your life, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. You try to figure out how you can save your life. Mm -hmm. And there are about four things that you can do. Um, some people, they just pass out. They faint. Okay. Because the fear is so great, the brain cannot process it and shuts down. Sure. And people just fall out. Um, second thing people will do is their muscles will, will start constricting. Mm -hmm. They'll start shaking, and they can't move. They just all tight. Have you have you ever seen anybody get into a fight and they roll into a little ball like in a fetal position? I haven't seen that, but I've heard of, heard of that happening. Yeah, yeah. It's because their muscles constrict. It's so afraid. Yeah. It's called uh, paralysis by fear. Okay. Uh, I don't do that either. The third thing people will do is to run away. Sure. And that is the best thing you can do, as quickly as you can. Separate yourself from the source of fear. Get away from it. Mm -hmm. All right. I would have done that if that had been an option, but it was not an option for me because how are you going to outrun a bullet 
mm-hmm. in a motel room. Mm-hmm. I don't have a gun. Mary didn't have a gun. The only person that I knew for sure who had the gun was a Nighthawk. You could see it on his hip. I did not know if Mr. Kelly had a weapon up under his suit jacket or not. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I didn't want to take a chance. So the last thing you can do, or fourth thing you can do, is what you call a preemptive strike. You get them before they get you. Mm-hmm. All right? So when I came up out of my chair, I was ready to dive across the table, grab Mr. Kelly, grab the Nighthawk, and slam them down to the ground and wrestle away the Nighthawk's gun. Okay. Yeah, I was going to do that. <laughs> and uh, because, you know, I, I did not want to die. Yeah. It's, it's my job to protect myself and my secretary. Right. It's the Nighthawk's job to protect himself and his boss. So it's, it's a matter of who gets who first. Right. Right. When I hit the table, I was looking right into Mr. Kelly's eyes. Was he up at this point? No. He was like, like braced. You know, he was still braced. You know, we all braced when I came up out of my chair. Okay. And I'm looking right into his eyes. And I didn't say a word because I knew my eyes were speaking. Mm-hmm. And he understood my eyes. My eyes were asking him, what did you just do? Mm-hmm. He didn't say a word. But I could read his eyes, too. His eyes were, were fixing on my eyes, fixated. And his eyes were saying to me, what did you just do? Mm-hmm. And the Nighthawk had his hand on, on the butt of his gun. He didn't pull it. He just had his hand on, on it. He's like, he looking like back and forth at both of us. Mm-hmm. Like, what did either one of you two do? Right? Mary was sitting on top of the dresser next to my chair because there were no more chairs. And she realized what had happened. And she began explaining it when it happened again. The ice in the ice bucket had begun melting. Mm-hmm. And the cans of soda shifted. That was it. Yeah. And we all began laughing, mm-hmm. all of us, at how ignorant we had been. Um, I won't say this was a learning moment, but it was definitely a teaching moment. Sure. Okay. Um, and the lesson taught is this. All because some foreign entity of which we were ignorant, that being the bucket of ice cans of soda, we were unaware of it, ignorant to it, mm-hmm. entered into our little comfort zone via the noise that it made, we became fearful and accusatory of each other. So the lesson taught is ignorance breeds fear. Mm-hmm. We fear the things we don't, we don't understand. We don't understand the noise. Right? If you do not keep that fear in check, that fear will be allowed to run wild and escalate and breed hatred Mm -hmm. because we hate the things that frighten us. If you don't keep that hatred in check, that hatred will escalate and breed destruction. All right? Mm -hmm. So we saw ignorance breeds fear, fear breeds hatred, hatred breeds destruction. We almost saw the whole chain unravel Mm -hmm. to completion. Completion would have been the last component. Had the guy put out his gun and just and destroyed somebody. Yeah. Or had I jumped across the table and hurt one of them. Yeah. All right. Fortunately, it stopped short of that. But you did see that same chain unravel to completion uh, on August 12th, 2017, mm. two hours from here in Charlottesville, Virginia, mm. at the Unite the Right rally. Right. Where there was a lot of ignorance there that day. A lot of fear there Mm -hmm. that day. A lot of hatred there that day. And what did it culminate in? It culminated in destruction when a white supremacist 
got inside his vehicle and tried to murder as many people as he could by driving full force into the crowd, mm-hmm. right? He succeeded in injuring 20 people and murdering one young lady, Heather Heyer, mm-hmm. all right? Ignorance breeds fear, fear breeds hatred, hatred breeds destruction. Now, here's, our, here's one of our problems. If you want to fix this problem, we need, to, we need to stop worrying about the hatred. We need to stop worrying about the fear. Those are, those are off, offshoot symptoms mm-hmm. of the real problem. The real problem is the source, ignorance. Mm-hmm. If you fix the ignorance, there's nothing to fear. Right. You fear what you don't know. Right. Once you know it, you don't fear it anymore, right? right. It's, it's like a dog. A dog's barking at you. You may be a little trepid. But once you get to know the dog, he's licking you, you don't fear him anymore. Right. Right? So leave the hatred alone. Leave the fear alone. Don't Stop addressing those things. That's a waste of time. Address the source problem, the cancer. You don't put a Band-Aid on top of cancer. You go down to the bone with radiation and chemo or whatever. Mm-hmm. Treat the ignorance. There is a cure for ignorance. The cure is called education. Mm-hmm. Education and exposure. All right? When you treat that ignorance, there's nothing to fear. If there's nothing, to, if there's nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate. If there's nothing to hate, there's nothing to destroy. All right. Um, sometimes when I'm speaking with uh, little kids in, in the elementary schools or some things, things like that, um, I'll be talking to to the class and just casual conversation, and then all of a sudden I say, I say "Hey, hey, hey! There's a snake under your chair." And these kids will scream and throw their legs up in the air just at the suggestion that there's a snake under, under, their, under their chair, under their desk, mm-hmm. right? And then they realize there is no snake. And they start laughing. Yeah. And they're wondering why, why I said that. And I say to them, why, why are we all screaming? <laughs> I say, I'm afraid of snakes. I hate snakes, all right? Well, why are you afraid of snakes? Why do you hate snakes? Well... They, they bite, they're poisonous, they can kill you. And they're slimy. <laughs> well, there's your ignorance. You know, anybody who's ever felt a snake knows it's not slimy. Sure. It's dry. All right? And not all snakes are poisonous. Sure. So it's ignorance, right? But they admit they're afraid of snakes and they hate snakes. Yeah. So I then say to them, all right, we know there's no snake under your chair. However, let's just say there really was a snake under your chair. What would you want me to do about it? You know what they say? Kill it. Right. <laughs> There's a the destruction. Right. Even at that age, kill it. Yeah. You know? That's the natural progression. Sure. So why, why start at the, at the top? Mm-hmm. Go, to, go to the root, <laughs> the root cause. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, um, after that was all over, Mary explained what was happening. We all laughed at how, how ignorant we all had been. And that, that planted a seed, one of many seeds, you know, that would eventually turn into a learning moment. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was just a teaching moment. So, um, Did this sort of uh, start a friendship or an acquaintanceship between you and this individual? That did not start a friendship, no. Okay. Um, but it planted a seed okay. that would lead to a friendship. Okay. Um, one of the most important things that, that you can do, that you have, all of us, our most important asset 
uh, for anything is our credibility. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, in order to to become friends with somebody, you have to see them repeatedly. Sure. Okay. The first time you meet them, it's just an acquaintance or whatever, you know, an associate, then you know, a colleague, then a friend or whatever. Um, you got to keep in mind, and this applies to anything, not just races or anything else. You only have one opportunity to make a good first impression. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, you might have a second or third opportunity to make an impression, but only one opportunity to make a good first impression. And most people would judge you on their first impression of you. All right. So, you know, if some guy asks you out mm-hmm. and you go out with him and he makes a bad first impression, it's <laughs> if over. he asks you out again, you it's can say, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah. you blow him off, right? Yeah. But if he makes a good first impression, you might go out with him a second time. Sure. All right. So even though we're at opposite ends ideologically, right? I have to sell him my credibility mm-hmm. and my transparency. So even though he may not agree with who I am, what I stand for, and the color of my skin, my credibility won him over. Because I was being honest, I was being upfront with him. I showed him respect, all right? I did not respect what he had to say, but I respected his right to say it. Mm-hmm. And most times, when people tell you that you're stupid, and that you're a criminal and you're lazy and whatever else, combat is on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you, then the whole, the whole thing is over because now you're fighting, right. either verbally or physically. Right. So he's used to that pushback. He didn't get it from me. Right. Because I'm confident in myself. I know who I am. Right. I don't need him to define it. So if, I wonder if, if if for him it was like he didn't know what to do because he was exactly. expecting the combat. Because he didn't get it's, it. It's, I threw him off his game. Yeah. Right. And so um, he realized, you know, hey, you know, he, he had to think about that interaction. And every time we would get together, I would water that seed. Mm-hmm. All right. So you start off at opposite ends. But each time you get together, you find a couple more things in common. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that divide narrows. Right. All right. So now you get about here instead of way out there. You have created a relationship. Right. So then you start watering that relationship. And you get even closer and closer in. So you say you might say, well, Daryl, what, you know, what do you have in common with a Klansman? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what kind of commonality do you have? Well, look at it this way. Do you feel that we have, we, that we have a need to get drugs off the streets? Yes. So does he. Okay. Well, now you've got something in common with a Klansman. <laughs> right? yeah. uh, you feel that we need better education for kids? Yes. So does he. Yeah. So find things that, that are a common denominator for all of us. Drugs do not discriminate. Mm-hmm. They don't care if you're in the clan, you're black, you're white, you're Asian, you're rich, you're poor. They will take you out. All right? So there's a common thing. So maybe we can achieve that goal of uh, of eradicating this drug problem a lot sooner mm-hmm. if we work together than if we work against each other. Mm-hmm. All right? Because we both want that. Uh, we both want education for kids. All right? Things like that. Focus on those commonalities. Then you are narrowing that divide. And then they began to humanize you mm-hmm. because you're already where you need to be. They have yet to get there. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, when they go home, just like you do at the end of the night before you go to bed, you know, you think about what, what you did during the day and evaluate it or whatever. They do too. Mm-hmm. They think, you know, 
what Chloe said was, it made some sense. Mm-hmm. But 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 she's black. Right, right, right. But yeah. but it made sense. But she's black. Right. So it's a cognitive dissonance right. thing, right? But that that step is necessary. Meaning you have to experience that step in order right. to get exactly. to the next step. Yeah. And so, so it comes to the point where they realize what you said was was right. Right. Which means and, then and that a black to, person can be right. Right. Which means you have to question now everything else that you exactly. That you once yeah. So now you have to determine. Uh, not you, but they yeah. have to determine what she said was right. Do I go on living a lie? Right. Or do I turn around and live the truth? Right. Okay? So that's up to them. It's an existential crisis. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. So, you know, you see, when you see my name listed in the media, it says, black musician converts X number of Klansmen. No. I did not convert anybody. I didn't even convert one. Yes, I am the impetus for over 200 leaving the, these organizations, but they converted themselves. Mm-hmm. I just gave them the food for thought. You know, I, My credibility is what allowed me to have repeat visits with them. Yeah. Even though they may not have liked me, they realized, hey, he's honest. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk to him some more. So is this the guy who, I saw the documentary um, about your work, is this the guy who invited you to the rallies, to the Klan um, rallies? Documentary, Roger Kelly was not, was not in the documentary. There were, there were several different Klansmen in the documentary. Okay. Tom Robb, uh, Scott Shepard, um, Frank Ancona, um, and, and, and a neo, the head of the uh, neo-Nazi party, the National Socialist Movement, mm-hmm. who's now out. He's my friend. Okay. So, so can you talk a little bit about the first time you went to a Klan rally? Like, how, yeah. What was, how did that happen? How was that arranged in the first place? <laughs> well... If the rally is is on public property, yeah, um, anybody can go. Okay, unless it starts getting violent, you know, sure. people start threatening. The police will not let you let these people come in too close together, right? Sure, they'll protect them. Um, if if the rally is on private property, you cannot go unless you're invited. So I've been to both kinds. Okay, um, you know, as as these people begin to trust me, and they realize I'm trying to learn something, I'm writing a book, blah blah blah. Okay, you know, you know, let, you know, let them come to our rally, whatever. Okay. So you get permission from the Grand Dragon or the Imperial Wizard, then even though some of the people might, might not like you there, right. they have to abide. Okay. Because that's their boss. It's like, it's like, you know, if the general says, you know, allow him, you know, in the barracks, yeah. then the sergeant cannot object. Was it weird the first time? Or like... It did... was weird seeing these people parade around a cross and then set it on fire. Yeah. And proclaim... You know, for my God, for my race, for my country, white power. Yeah. March around in their robes and hoods and this big cross on fire. Um, yeah, that, that was kind of strange. Yeah. Was um, it funny to see, like, people within the movement looking at the top leaders strangely because you were there? No. Um, there were some who were very upset about it. Okay. But they couldn't react to it. Some, some of them even quit. Oh wow! I went and joined some other clan. You okay, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So not they didn't quit the clan; they just right. joined another. They, they yeah. quit that chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so interesting. Like uh, one time, um, I let them borrow my bus, and uh, <laughs> about fifteen of them came over to my house. And they sat right there where you were sitting, and right here, all over, and uh, they like to drink beer. Now, I don't drink, 
but I bought some beer because I knew they were gonna come over and return my bus. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so two of them had never been in a black person's house before, at least not on a friendly basis for sure. these, right? And they didn't know what to do. They kind of sat all with their arms folded up tight. Yeah. You know, they wouldn't. They would not accept any beer from me, pretzels, <laughs> nothing. They wouldn't even talk. Even while there. their other peers were yeah, totally well, drinking and talking yeah. and yeah, having having a good old time. We're talking about stuff. Yeah. They, they sat there like, man, I don't believe I'm in this person's house. <laughs> you know. And guess what? They quit. And then um, uh, Roger Kelly began getting hate mail mm, right. anonymously, and we'll, and he and I talked about it. And he said, you know, because now, you know, now he's out of the clan, right? Yeah. I have his robe and hood and stuff. Okay. We talked about it. And he was getting the same kind of hate mail that he himself used to send out. And so, Irony. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. Wow. So when, what was it like to receive, I don't know if it was a call or something like that, a, a, a meetup. But what did it feel like when you first were told by someone that they were leaving the clan? The first time I was kind of questionable. Okay. Um, I had gotten into a fight with a clansman. Okay. And um, I beat this guy up and I'd gone up to uh, Elkton, Maryland. I had to go by the court there to get some documents. Mm -hmm. And I ran into another Klansman there. <laughs> okay. Right? He, he was in there for something else. Some trouble he was in or something. Yeah. <laughs> and he came over short talking to me. And he, uh, he, he, he wasn't there when I beat up one of his... Uh, his you members. Know, one of his brothers. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, but they were plotting to get me. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And... He knew. If I get you, you mean like take you out? Do something to me. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so he was there at the plot. And he felt the need to warn me. Wow. Because Yeah, because he knew that um, that they had made up. Um, all right, let me tell you what happened. The leader and, 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 and his cyclops mm -hmm. were on the way to the courthouse. Get this. They're on their way to the courthouse to get a permit to burn a cross in the park. Okay. Okay? Uh, they're going to have a public rally. Okay. And anytime you're going to set anything on fire in public, you know, you need a permit, right? Yeah, exactly. So you got to go, go get a permit. Right. And so they're on their way to the, to the uh, to get a permit. And they get to the, to the traffic light at, at uh, Route 40 and Route 7 in Elkton, Maryland, which is a big intersection. Um... And this car here is a black guy driving and a white girl passenger. Okay. Which is taboo for them, right? Right, right. Words were exchanged. The two clansmen got out, dragged the guy out of the car in the intersection, and beat him what they thought was to death. Wow. And left him in the street in front of 11 witnesses. Okay? Mm -hmm. And they drove off. Wow. Left him there for dead, right? Well, uh, he didn't die. Um, and then all these 11 witnesses, they knew who they were. They, everybody knows who the clan leaders are in these little tiny towns. Mm -hmm. you know. And so uh, it was reported. So now they're wanted for assault with intent to murder. Mm -hmm. So they fled. One guy fled to Virginia, the other one fled to Delaware. 
uh, the leader went to Delaware, the Cyclops went to Virginia. Well, the leader got arrested uh, or pulled over for drunk driving mm. in Delaware. And they checked him and, oh, he's wanted in Maryland. Click, click. Extradited him to Maryland, right? Mm-hmm. So now he's in jail. And then two weeks later, the guy in Virginia turned himself in. Okay. All right. So, um, oh yeah, so 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 uh, so they go to court. Um, one gets seven years, one gets 15 years. Mm-hmm. The clan, the chapter, the, the local ones came to, came to the courthouse. They stood in the back of the courtroom with their arms folded, looking at the judge. Mm-hmm. As though they Trying were to intim- intimidate. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Stupid. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The judge was not to be intimidated. Right. So he sentenced one to 15, one to seven. And so I was there every day. Of the of the trial, watching it. Okay. All right. So after the sentencing was over, the case is over. Um, they were gathered. The clan was gathered by the door leading out to the parking lot, and they're right right inside the, the the courthouse, right, right you know right inside the door. And so I came down the stairs, and I'm gonna go out to the parking lot, go to my car, and go home. Mm-hmm. Well, they were all standing there, and rather than go through them, I kind of like walked around them. Sure. And by right when I got to the door. I felt something hit me in the back of my leg. I turned around. It was this clanswoman. She had kicked me. And um, she's going to kick me again. And right as I turn around, here comes her foot. And I grabbed her by the ankle mm-hmm. when her foot came up. Mm-hmm. So now I got her balancing her on one foot. Yeah. Right? I said, don't you do that again. She's calling me nigger this and nigger that and blah, blah, blah. They were incredulous that... A white man could go to prison for beating a black man. That just did not compute yeah, yeah, in their yeah. head. All right? Yeah. So now they're angry. And I'm black, so they're going to take it out on me. Right. Because one of their brothers went to the prison, right? Right. Two of them went. So I'm, I'm holding her on her leg. I said, don't you do that again. She's calling me nigger this, nigger that on one leg. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I let her go. As soon as I let her go, two of these guys jumped on me. I threw one guy off, and I beat the shit out of the other guy. Wow. All right? The deputies came running because the deputies protect the courthouse. Yeah. They came running, separated everybody, and um, I pressed charges. So she gets arrested. Mm-hmm. He gets arrested. Mm-hmm. All right. And um, uh, he went to jail. She, she, she got she put up money and got out. Mm-hmm. And he got out later. All right. So now um, uh, you, you, have a, you have to go to court for this. Mm-hmm. Right. So. In the meantime, they're going to plot against me. Mm-hmm. So the guy in the courthouse knew that um, what had happened. Right. They made up a story that I had called this woman a white bitch and I slapped her in the face. Oh, wow. Okay. So they filed a, a complaint against me. Assault. Wow. I, I had assaulted this woman and, and called her this. Mm-hmm. I didn't do anything of, of the kind. Right. And, and this Klansman knew it. Yeah, because he was there he was when they were plotting. Yeah, yeah. Right, and so he said, you know, you know he he, he didn't want to lie about it. Right. So he came and he told me. He said, you know, you know, they're planning on getting you. Did and you ask him why are you telling me this? No, he, I think he'd had enough. Okay. You know, because it was like one lie after another. Yeah. And so he told me, uh, he'd had it, and he was he was done. He was getting out. Wow. And you said you were and a little bit. You didn't. Believe I, yeah, it. I. You know, it's kind of a rough clan. Okay. I mean, here they are beating somebody to death in the street. Right. Or trying to. Yeah. <clears throat> now they're trying to make up stuff about me and get me. So, oh, anyway, the prosecutor threw their case out mm-hmm. and kept mine. Yeah. So they got in trouble. But anyway, 
he said he was getting out. And um, he said to me, oh, oh, which way are you going when you leave here? I said, why? He goes, well, I rode the bus here. I'll see if you're going you know, in my direction. I'm going to get a ride with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, well, I'll take you anywhere you want to go. Yeah. And so he goes, oh, that's cool, you know. So we walk out to my car, and he starts telling me all kinds of stuff that they had done mm-hmm. uh, illegally. They put, put a swastika on a synagogue. They'd blown the door off of a black church mm. up in Elkton. Um, <coughs> you know, and so I'm wondering, you know, is this guy setting me up? Right. You know, is he trying to get my trust? Right. And he said he was, he was going to quit, and he was going to get rid of all his stuff. And something told me, don't let him get rid of it. Ask him for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, you know, what are you going to do with your, with your robe and stuff? He says, I'm, I'm going to throw it away. And I said, may I have it? Mm-hmm. He goes, you, you really want it? I said, yeah. He goes, all right. But I don't know why, but all right. Yeah. So I took him to his apartment. He goes, come on. And we walk up, up the steps, and I'm walking behind him. And then, you know... This, you know, this was not on my route. Right. Um, Were you thinking this could be it? Uh, yeah, I'm thinking, you know, there's yeah. a possibility, you know, brace yourself. Yeah. Um, I mean, I knew if I was going to get into a fight, I might lose because there might be more people in, in there than I am. Right. It was only me. Right. But I'm going to take somebody with me. Yeah. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So anyway, he opens the door. He walks in. And I'm like, you know, I see a girl sitting over here. It's a clans lady. Mm-hmm. She's sitting there. And she looks at me like, looks at him like, what's he doing here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And, she, and he tells her, I'm, I'm out, I'm done. You know, Just straight up. Yeah. Just like that. And so I sat there with her and talked with her. And, and now some of these women, they, they really believe in, in the, in the uh, ideology. Yeah. Others, they're in it because their boyfriend or their husband's in it. Sure. One of those kind of things. Yeah. So he goes to the back. Uh, well, first he goes to the kitchen. He gets a uh, hefty trash bag. Okay. And he goes to the back to his room or wherever. And he came back. His robe and hood were in this bag. Uh, his uh, certificate of membership. His clan belt buckle. All kinds of stuff was in the bag. Is this where you're slowly but surely realizing that this is real? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There was nobody else there. Yeah. You know? And he, he, he said to me, he said, you know, do me one favor. Please don't tell anybody mm-hmm. who gave you this. Right. I said, okay, because there would be retaliation yeah. against him. Yeah. So um, I said, all right. Wow. That, that was my first one. Yeah. yeah. And since then, how many have you collected? I've got probably maybe now 52, 54. Okay. And I know that you say you're thinking of one day opening up a museum. Yeah, absolutely. I got my 501c3. Nice. You know, and uh, I'm starting right now. I'm going to loan some stuff to the Holocaust Museum in Orlando, mm-hmm. and they're going to tour it around the country. Okay. And that will, you know, uh, net me, you know, some um, uh, contacts and network sure. and possibly some money to start my own. Sure. So I'm going to, we're going to wrap up just because we've been speaking for um, almost an hour here, actually over an hour, which is great, um, but the battery is almost dead. So <laughs> do you have any, you know, given all of your experiences of not converting former KKK members, but certainly being the seed that sparks the change within them. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any last words of advice for, you know, my generation and the generation coming after me as we would like to affect positive change in the world as well? Yeah. You know, I get a lot of flack mm-hmm. from young people 
black people, so white people, uh, for what I do, um, that I should be spending my time fighting the systemic racism. Yes, I've uh, heard this, yeah. Yeah, as opposed to these individuals and all this other kind of stuff. Um, but you know what? Who runs the, the systemic? Mm. It doesn't run by itself. Right. There's somebody behind it. Right. So you got to influence the people, the, the people, before you can change the systemic. And also what I see is, you know, why do you think it's your job to teach white people how to treat us? Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's your job to teach the Klan how to treat us? Well, I see a lot of hypocrisy there. Mm-hmm. Because those are the same people who march up and down in front of the police station every time some black person gets shot. Mm. Why is it their job to teach the police how to treat us? Right, sure. It's the same thing. Yeah. If we don't teach people how to treat us, this is what happens. Right. Okay? And because there's more of them than us, they need to be taught. Right. Okay? So, yes, we should not have to do it, mm-hmm. but it is a necessity. Mm-hmm. Okay? So it's no different... Uh, of me teaching the Klan how to have respect for black people and expose them to that, then, then we go and try to teach the police, hey, if a black person is holding up a cell phone, it's the same thing as a white person holding up a cell phone. Yeah. You don't shoot for, uh, white people 40 times. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining the Theory of Enchantment podcast. You've certainly given me a lot to think about. Um, and I just want to also say thank you for all the work that you've done. You've been a real inspiration and, you know, I hope to, to do work in the same spirit, uh, of what you've accomplished, especially your philosophy and your approach, um, and, and your teaching. So thank you for joining. Thank you so much. And let's consider this part one. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. Yes. It's part one. Oh, guys, wasn't that an amazing episode? I'm so happy I got the chance to sit with Daryl Davis and and really just talk with him and and hear more about his experience. You know, I usually, for my quote of the day, I usually pull from someone who's not the author um, or the the person, the subject who was interviewed. But for today, I'm actually going to change the rules and um, I'm going to quote Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is going to provide our quote of the day because, again, as I said in the introduction to this interview, Daryl Davis's message is immediately relevant to us in this new reality that we're facing right now. Um, And I want you to remember what he said um, as you experience the next few days, weeks, months, who knows how long this is going to be. I want you to remember what he said, um, which was something that he realized in his process of, you know, helping people leave the KKK. He said, if you do not keep that fear in check, that fear will breed hatred. If you don't keep that hatred in check, it will escalate and cause destruction. So remember right now, as you're navigating some of the most difficult, most trying times, I know some of you out there are dealing with a a whole lot of different responsibilities that you now have on your plate. You're worried about your health. You're worried about the health of your family. You're worried about the health perhaps of your colleagues, of your peers, you're worried about what's going to happen with your jobs. All this is super, super important, but it's also important to keep in mind, perhaps most important, your mental health, because without your mental health, everything else crumbles. And it's important that as you see everything unfolding in the world around you, you keep your fear in check. Do not let your fear of the future control you. Keep that fear in check. If you don't keep that fear in check, that fear will breed hatred 
it, that hatred will escalate and cause destruction. So that makes for another episode of the Theory of Enchantment podcast. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Again, please, please, please subscribe to this amazing, totally new newsletter that we'll be producing and sending out every Tuesday. It'll be full of resources that'll hopefully help some of you all maintain your sanity, uh, achieve a sense of groundedness and balance in your life as you navigate this storm that is COVID-19. I'm your host, Chloe Valdry. I hopefully will all see you next time. Thanks.